another pot of coffee is brewing and I'm actually around halfway through my second half pint mug of the day. And as always, it's amazing. So that means it's time for another episode of Not Before Coffee. I'm your host, Ray, self-confessed bookworm, film addict, TV show marathoner, hermit, long-term depression sufferer, and very honest caffeine fiend. Luckily, the cold that I developed last week has gone, unlike the people who have been suffering from long-lasting bugs. The only reminders I have are infrequent sniffles and some very loud sneeze attacks. They're really inelegant, I have to say. This week, I'm taking a look at a film that straddles two different genres, comedy and romantic drama. If it weren't for one specific casting choice, the film would probably have been 100% romantic drama, even if that was not the intention of the writers. I have a few good films on the list to look at, and this one wasn't quite at the top. In fact, it probably was nowhere near the top. But then my internet connection went down, and as I already had this one downloaded on my computer from the Amazon app, it was this or spending another day of my precious week off catching up on old episodes of the vampire detective drama Moonlight, not the film. So what movie won the watching lottery on a wet, miserable Tuesday afternoon in September? Why, the 2016 so-called romantic comedy that I personally feel is anything but how to be single. So what's this masterpiece of modern cinema about then? After four years of college, young Alice, portrayed by Dakota Johnson, decides she needs a break from her long-term boyfriend, Josh. Excited and ready for new challenges, the eager grad moves to New York to take a job as a paralegal. Helping her navigate her way through an unfamiliar city is Robin, played by Rebel Wilson, a fun-loving, wild co-worker who enjoys partying and one-night stands. With Robin as her freewheeling guide, Alice can now learn how to get free drinks, meet men, and enjoy the single lifestyle. The film starts like another romantic comedy I reviewed on here all the way back in February 2021. Loud clubbing music and a narrator giving us a summary of what the film is all about, through their eyes. For anyone who hasn't seen this film in a while, which is probably a large majority of you, it starts with a scene in a club. Loud pumping music, a crowd of young people bumping and grinding against each other on a dance floor as they drink way too much. And right in the middle of it all is one of our lead characters, Robin, though we haven't formally met her yet. We're also sort of introduced to Lucy, played by Alison Brie, She's desperate to get married and views every single encounter with a man, whether he's serving her coffee or a potential partner on a dating site, as her possible life mate. She carries around a collection of wedding magazines with her. Yeah, that's really going to encourage a single man to date you. But we don't meet her yet either. Then there's a bartender, seemingly a fixture in this particular type of film. He's a one-night stand kind of guy, chasing off his encounters before they can get a single toe under his breakfast table. Finally, we're introduced to our main protagonist, 
And it's no coincidence that a lot of what annoys me about her reminds me in great detail of what annoyed me about Gigi in He's Just Not That Into You. But I will get into the connections a little later on. Our main protagonist is Alice, played by Dakota Johnston, complete with a really awful short bob and fringe. For some reason that I never really get, she's dumping her long-term college boyfriend Josh, played by Nicholas Braun, who was in another film I've talked about on here, Shallow Girl. I love that film, and I'll leave a link to the review below. Anyway, Alice is telling Josh that she doesn't want to break up with him, she just wants to take a break, as she needs to find out who she truly is. Cue rolling eyes from anyone older than 25, who knows that this is a pile of bull that people say when they have no idea what they're talking about. Josh is not happy about the arrangement, but Alice tells him that it's not going to be forever, just so she gets a chance to do a few of the things that she's been putting off during the time they have been in a relationship. Things such as walking on the Grand Canyon at sunrise. Yeah, okay. Things that he actually tells her she tried and didn't like. But why does something like that actually matter in the scheme of things? Alice needs to find out who she really is. Yes, that was meant to sound sarcastic. Fast forward a few moments in the film, that could be a few weeks or months, who knows. Alice is travelling across a bridge to the song Welcome to New York by Taylor Swift. And I had to look that up because I didn't know what the song was. She has got a job as a paralegal and in her first hour is introduced to Robin, played by the always loud and always over the top Rebel Wilson. Robin is confident in who she is. She possibly does her job well. To be honest, she must or she would have been fired by now. Robin is happy to have met someone in the office that she can party with and makes it her job to introduce Alice to the party lifestyle that the city offers. It's on her first day on the job that Robin introduces Alice to the serial one-night stand bartender, Tom, who we briefly met earlier. Robin doesn't seem to care about much at all, and she's probably not the best influence if a person wants to get far in their career, but she has taken shy little Alice, sorry to anyone who finds the character to have any redeeming qualities, under her wing, and on her second day on the job, both of them are over three hours late. How do people like that keep a job? Seriously, one of my workplaces would wipe you up if you were even 10 minutes late, more than twice over a three-month period. Anyway, so Alice is finding a little bit of freedom in being single in the city, but she isn't happy and Robin knows full well that Alice is going against type, that she's not coded for the one-night stand lifestyle, she is more like Lucy, with her algorithms and her serial dates to find the right man to marry her. The thing is, as much as it appears we are really meant to identify with Alice, to feel sorry for her, I just can't help remembering that she brought this entire situation upon herself. She is the one who told her boyfriend that she needed time alone. Does she expect him to just wait around for her? She soon discovers that this is not the case, when she is out one afternoon cycling through the park and bumps into Josh, he, it appears, has moved on and has a new girlfriend. Alice tells him that she's nearly done finding herself and will be back soon, and it seems as though she is actually expecting him to be grateful or something. Oh my god, this girl has some cojones on her. Seriously. 
It appears that Tom, Mr. Serial Seducer, has been hoist by his own petard and is slowly realising that he is actually interested in Miss Monogamous Lucy. Shades of Gigi and Alex. Of course, you have to turn over a few rocks and kiss a few frogs to find the perfect man, and Lucy now believes she has in the form of Paul, played by Mr Scarlett Johansson, Colin Jost. However, Lucy shows her psycho commitment hand way too soon and manages to frighten him off just before Christmas. The following day, Lucy has a bit of a mental breakdown as she is reading to children at the library. One of the librarians saves her from herself and his name is George. In many ways, he is her knight in shining armour. Alice's sister Meg is an OBGYN and until very recently had zero interest in babies despite delivering loads of them, apparently over 3,000. But suddenly her biological clock starts ticking and desperate to have a baby, she pays for artificial insemination. Of course, this means that now she is going to meet her perfect man, or at least someone who could be her Mr. Perfect. And of course, as this is a movie, she does, at Alice's work Christmas party. While Robin is off playing some kind of dirty secret Santa and gifting people with things like hole punches and stolen credit cards, Ken, the new office receptionist, makes a move on Meg. Being honest, I actually like Meg and Ken's story far more than I like any of the other supposed love stories in this film. She's older, wiser, doesn't believe in the whole fairy tale and is independent enough that she knows what she wants and almost always goes out to get it. Unfortunately for her, Ken has arrived in her life at exactly the wrong moment. She is pregnant by a sperm donor and has every intention of going it alone. Ken is much younger than her and she is just looking for someone to scratch that second trimester hormonal itch. But I guess we should get back to boring Alice and her whiny self-pitying ways. Earlier in the film she bumped into David Stone played by Damon Waynes Jr. The meet cute was anything but cute, in fact it was downright awkward and there was zero chemistry. After a disastrous party at her ex Josh's place where he now lives with his girlfriend Michelle, who believes that Alice is his cousin, Alice is taking another reflective walk along the streets of New York. It's a scene that they show multiple times throughout the film to show that Alice is alone. And she bumps into David and he takes her into a deserted building. Yes, there is no common sense with this girl at all. And David, it turns out, is a very rich developer and he owns this building where he shows her a stunning view of the Rockefeller Center Christmas tree which was apparently one of the things on the list she mentioned to Josh at the beginning of the film when she ended their relationship. This was something she was willing to end a relationship for. Okay. We're not even halfway through the film and already I am checking to see how long I have got left. This is not a good sign. Anyway, we now find ourselves skipping forward three months. It's St. Patrick's Day and Alice is apparently still with David, who has now introduced her to his daughter Phoebe. He takes a phone call and leaves the two together and Phoebe innocently asks Alice if she knows a song that they then both start singing together. 
David gets really funny as apparently this was a song that his deceased wife used to sing to the baby when she was very young. He gives Alice some kind of speech about how she isn't Phoebe's mother and they end their contact then and there. This whole relationship, which literally happened in five minutes, feels like it was rushed. But what do I know about filmmaking? What follows is a series of Alice having meaningless one-night stands, leaving before breakfast and going home to her empty apartment. She also starts to finally work her way through that list of things she told Josh she always wanted to do, either alone or with Robin. By this point, we are led to assume that Meg is quite far along in her pregnancy, and she has been doing her utmost to avoid bumping into Ken, but given they don't really hang around in the same social circles, that shouldn't be too hard and New York isn't exactly a small place. Unfortunately, one afternoon when she's in the shop buying something for the baby, Ken spots Meg through the window and thus starts probably the cutest scene in the entire film. He clearly cares for her and would absolutely love to be a stay-at-home dad and look after their baby because even though it's not genetically his, the baby would be theirs. This relationship is probably the purest in the entire film. When Meg finally tells him that she doesn't want him, it's actually really sad, and he leaves her with one line. This is not me leaving. This is you pushing me away. I know I haven't mentioned Robin much in this summary, but as a woman who doesn't grow or change much through the film, she's almost an observer. Yes, she's Alice's friend, and yes, she does influence a lot of Alice's behaviour, but ultimately Alice is an adult who has control over herself and her impulses, and therefore Robin is just someone who encourages her to be who she always was underneath. She has a few funny lines here and there, as Rebel Wilson tends to do in this sort of film, but if I had to say whether I felt she was someone the film could be the same without, then I would say yes. Anyone could have been the catalyst. Anyway, I'm not quite sure how much time has passed at this point, though Meg is now incredibly close to her due date, and it's Alice's birthday. She's having a party on the roof of her building, which looks to have been set up by a professional party planner, complete with congratulations spelt out in lights and a big bar. Robin is being a bit of a stirrer at this point and has invited not only Tom, but David and Josh. Alice is less than amused and when Robin tells her that she did it to show Alice that this lifestyle wasn't for her, as well as to give herself a little bit of a laugh, Alice rips into Robin and they have a huge falling out. Alice then goes to hide on the stairs, leaving her own party and Josh comes to comfort her. They end up making out and he tells Alice that he thinks he made a mistake, but he is also now engaged to Michelle. Needing time to herself, as she seems to do a lot in this film, Alice heads down to get a taxi, but her journey is cut short and diverted when it turns out that Meg has gone into labour and Robin will do anything to get her friend's pregnant sister to the hospital, including fling herself in front of a car. When they arrive at the doors, however, Robin cries off with... You don't need me anymore. Ken arrives at the hospital and we get a single moment. One that I am really happy about if I'm being truthful because those two just belong together. 
As the end of the film rolls, we see everyone going about their lives. We see Lucy and George getting married, Tom finally doing something about his serial one-night-stand ways, Alice making up with Robin, people moving on with their lives and adapting, changing. And then we see Alice climbing up to watch the sunrise at the Grand Canyon. Just in case you haven't checked any podcatchers out in the last week, a brand new episode of The Bookshop with special guest Chance from Strive, Seek, Find, all about the incredible Good Omens written by Terry Pratchett and Neil Gaiman, is available for download now. So, why does this all sound so familiar? Well, this film is actually based on a book written by Liz Tuchillo, who, as well as writing episodes of Sex and the City, also co-wrote the self-help book, He's Just Not That Into You. Yes, that very same book. Also, the screenplay for this film was written by two of the writers who worked on the aforementioned 2009 film, Abby Cohn and Mark Silverstein. Now, I'm not saying that this film is all bad. Okay, I actually am, really. The central character inflicted her loneliness on herself, and the opening monologue is so full of absolute crap. We're embarrassed to admit that we're single and pretend that we're not. I am relieved that I wasn't eating or drinking anything when this particular statement was made, because it's rubbish. How to make those who aren't like that feel as though there's something wrong with them? I know, some people but feel an unbelievable sense of sorrow when they're alone. But statistics aside, some people actually choose to be and are confident enough in that choice to talk about it. Unfortunately, this type of message makes out that everyone should be ashamed of this state. I'm going to say it. I am Ray. I have been single for 25 years, out of choice. I don't want to share my bathroom or my bed with anyone. I like being a starfish when I sleep. I'm not embarrassed by the choice I have made. I've done a bit of research into the film and the book that it's based on because I don't want to spout rubbish without having some fact. So, this film cost a whopping $38 million to make and despite the hopes that Warner Brothers had it would be a box office buster, it was released the same weekend as Deadpool and Zoolander 2 and ended up only making $112.3 million globally. Yeah, that might sound like a massive amount, but when you consider how much films make these days, that's not even three times its budget. Also, young Alice? I'm guessing that Alice is meant to be around 22, perhaps 24 in this film, so why is she acting like a woman in her mid to late 30s? Oh wait, I know this one. It's because Alice is actually meant to be someone else entirely, a 37-year-old woman called Julie Jensen. This film is about as closely based on the book as The Wedding Day is based on Asking for Trouble, which I did an episode on and I will link that one down below as well. It appears that I am not alone in my opinions of this film, with the critics who rated it awarding it a score of 47% on Rotten Tomatoes and on Metacritic, they've given it a score of 51 out of 100. All that means is that the film was met with mixed opinions. Mine is on the more negative side, if you couldn't tell. 
I decided to delve into the reviews on this one and found that there were quite a few one-star reviews on IMDb that really said what I was feeling, including this one titled, Such a Sad Movie, though I don't think they mean sad as in, it made me cry. My God, what a terrible movie. I know that I shouldn't have high standards when it comes to rom-coms, and trust me, mine are super low, but this one hits rock bottom. It's so condescending and sexist that I had a hard time watching it to the end. Have you seen this film? Out of curiosity, did you like it? Do you share my views? I would really love to hear what you think. Have I been unfair? So we've come to the question and answer part of the episode. Let me know if there are any questions you would like to hear me answer about the films and shows I watch, or if there's something you'd really love to hear me cover. Did I enjoy it? Very rarely do I give any film a definitive no. But for this one, I'll make an exception. It's the sort of film you maybe watch when there's nothing else on and you've had a few drinks. This is not a film that you should sit and analyse unless you want to end up feeling really frustrated. The lead female protagonist was annoying. Yes, she was the mistress of her own destiny, but she just expected everyone else to wait around until she was ready for the things they wanted. She sulked and moaned and whined, and the whole film would have been so much better had she been a character on the periphery, and the main story had been that of Ken and Meg, who I loved and was really happy to see got the right ending. Would I watch more? I've now seen this film a few times. Okay, two times. And the second time is it for me. It is so similar to the other film that it is clearly modelled on. He's just not that into you. The bar in this is central to the events that happen, just as it was in the other film. The bartender realises that he doesn't want to be single after he watches the girl who keeps on coming in on multiple disaster dates that he advises her against. There's even a scene where he saves her from humiliation at the hands of a friend. This film is a clone with a different cast. The only big difference between that one and this is that this time there were actually two characters who deserved to get a happy ever after, whereas last time they were all awful human beings. How are things in the coffee household this week? This coming Monday, if you are listening before the 4th of October, I will be starting a brand new job. I am nervous, anxious, and all those other adjectives that can describe nerves and worry. But I am also really happy to be making this next step in my life. It was the right time to make a change and move on to something new. Last week, I worked my final day for my previous company, and it was weird. I went into the office, we had KFC for lunch, and I took in a brownie cake, which I can't actually eat as I am allergic to eggs. A very annoying, but luckily not life-threatening allergy. I sat at my desk pretty much the entire day after filling in my exit interview questionnaire, which had my stomach churning with dread. I was twiddling my thumbs and wishing I had watched a film for this week already so I could start writing up my notes. But stupidly, I didn't plan well enough, and instead I ended up playing around and cleaning off files from my personal computer hard drive so that all ties with the business were cut the moment I left the building. I don't know why, 
But for some reason, instead of taking this opportunity to really let my manager know what frustrated me about the business, from the lack of sick benefits to a decidedly ungenerous holiday allowance, the bare minimum provided in the UK, the fact that we had to pay for tea and coffee and couldn't wear shoes in the building, and things that frustrated me about the way I had personally been treated. I sat back and said very little. I did mention the holiday and the sick, but from the expression on her face and comments outside the building, I know that this has been mentioned by people who've left before, and nothing has changed, so it was just a waste of breath. Sometimes I hate the fact that I am so scared of the outcome, I won't even take the time to stretch my fingers and touch the comments that my brain sees as negative. I don't want to risk offending or hurting someone if I can avoid it, and so many times this is to my detriment. So, you may be asking, what exactly does any of this have to do with my mental health? Strangely, quite a lot. My entire life I have suffered from minor abandonment issues and I'm sure that I have mentioned them before. They started long before my dad passed away when I was 11. In fact, I can trace their origins back to when I was barely six and in my second, third year of primary school and friends I had bonded with changed schools. Though it seems indirect, really. My fear of telling the truth actually is very closely linked to my fear of alienating people. Okay, So the chances are I am unlikely to see my ex-employers again, even after they were all, oh, we'll have to meet up soon when you're settled in your new job, when I left. But this doesn't mean that I am any closer to gaining the courage to tell them exactly what I think, whether it is the truth, which it is, or not. In my head, I'm always terrified that whatever I say is going to be misconstrued, that the words aren't going to come out the way I want, that the things in my head will sound insulting, abrupt or offensive, even though I don't mean them to be. My entire life I have over-examined every single thing I want to say, rolled it around in my head, practised saying it and still there is a concern that someone is going to hear it and instead of hearing what I want to come across, they'll be upset. Whatever the truth, I don't like to hurt people with my words, so sometimes I practise the don't say anything rule, which ends up with me feeling frustrated and resentful, but it is, to my mind, the better alternative. Yes, it does mean that I am often bottling things up that should probably have been said aloud, but I am forever fearful that my tone will be off, or I'll say a few words wrongly, and the person I am saying them to will be hurt or upset, thus bringing around the cycle of alienation and abandonment. I am forever worried about consequence. So that's it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed the listen and I will be back next week with more. Don't forget the bookshop will be open again on Monday with a brand new episode and I really hope you'll like what I have to say about my next book when I finally decide what it is. If you like what you hear, why not share it with your friends and family and please post a review or a star rating over on Podchaser. I really love reading what you have to say. You can follow me on Twitter at need underscore three underscore mugs, where I'm pretty active, or on Instagram at not before coffee podcast. Well, I now need another cup of coffee as that last one has gone. So I'm going to go and put the kettle on. Until next time, this is me saying farewell. Farewell.